As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 3 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 6, Episodes 1 and 2 for the previous parts of this five-part case. The fourth installment will be available in three days. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. 
this podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. A great deal of anger in the media was directed at Rose West after her husband's death. There was a sense that Fred West had escaped justice by taking his own life, and now he would not have to answer for his crimes. The anger towards his widow was not tempered when it was reported that a unit of Winchester Prison had been purpose-built for Rose, while she would stand trial. It was the first time such a cell was built for a single prisoner in the UK. Rose West was separated from the other inmates. She had all the amenities of home. She had her own personal lavatory and shower. As she was on remand, Rose was allowed to be sent takeaway food. She would be free to wear what she wished had her own personal washing machine and tumble dryer, was able to receive correspondence, read the newspaper, watch the television when she wanted, and had a visiting area to meet family, friends and her council. The idea to house Rose West in this location was to save time, as the journey from the prison where she was previously being kept was a three-hour round trip. Winchester Prison was only a short distance from the Crown Court. Constructed from seven separate cells, the prison service described the changes and structural alterations made as, quote, minimal. It seemed that the public believed that declaration just as much as Rose West's claims of innocence. Around 200 journalists and photographers have descended on Winchester to cover the trial. All hoping for a first glimpse of the woman who faces 10 murder charges. When the news of Fred West was on, it was covered with huge sort of media coverage, so I think that the trial should be covered in that same way. Certainly be very interested in the results. I'm not interested. It's too hard. Outside courtroom number three, swarms of reporters and camera crews were lined up to catch a glimpse of the defendant arriving and leaving the courtroom on her five-minute journey between her cell and the Crown Court in Winchester. With her hands clasped together in a pair of large-rimmed glasses, a white blouse and a black jacket, Rose West pleaded not guilty to every charge put to her by the court clerk. A crucifix hung around her neck. Tears marked the defendant's cheeks as the prosecutor named the victims one by one. It was alleged that Rose West had killed ten children, teenagers and young women between 1971 and 1987 
Charmaine West, Linda Goff, Carol Ann Cooper, Lucy Partington, Therese Siegenthaler, Shirley Hubbard, Juanita Mott, Shirley Ann Robinson, Alison Chambers, and Heather West. The youngest victim, Charmaine West, was eight years old. Jurors had been warned by Mr Justice Mantell that they needed to judge the case on the evidence presented in the courtroom, not what they had read in the newspapers. He acknowledged that there had been a lot of coverage on the case, and every juror had likely heard about it in some form or another. Put out of your mind any preconception, prejudice or sentiment, you must banish such thoughts from your mind. Mr Justice Mantell said. Enter upon your very heavy responsibility in a clear-cut way, unaffected by anything you may have read about this case, which certainly has its sensational aspects. When the judge spoke, he was not stern, continuing in a measured, quiet tone. He solemnly told the members of the jury that the evidence the Crown were to present would be difficult to hear. Each juror received a ring binder packed full of information on the case. Maps where the bodies were found, house plans, photographs of the scene, and a copy of the indictment against Rose West. It had been arranged that jurors could be offered counselling if they needed it. Several specially trained therapists are on hand to deal with the long-term effects of the experience. Assisted by junior prosecuting counsel Andrew Chubb, Brian Leveson QC led the prosecution. In his opening remarks, he told the eight men and four women of the jury that the victims had been treated without dignity or respect. He said, The picture I describe revealed by the evidence and the photographs you will see is in places horrific and harrowing. I don't do it to shock or provoke sympathy, but so you have the entire picture to try the case. Claiming they were kindly homeowners who had rooms for rent, Fred and Rose West convinced their unsuspecting victims to come back to Cromwell Street. Rose at least had confessed to a former neighbour that along with her husband, they would drive around looking for hitchhikers and see if they needed a place to stay. They wanted, quote, runaways with nowhere to go. It was alleged that Rose West and her husband had lured victims to their home or abducted them off the street. As a result, they would become objects to satisfy the West's sexual depravity. The attacks could sometimes last for days at a time. Holes were found drilled into the wooden beams of the cellar. It has been postulated that the victims were somehow suspended in mid-air during their attacks. Few survived, 
and if they did, they were only allowed to leave if Fred and Rose felt confident the victims would not report what happened. Some of the survivors bravely recounted the horrific experiences before the court, providing testimony on behalf of the prosecution. One such witness claimed she had been sexually assaulted and raped. The witness labelled Miss A for legal reasons was only 15 when she stayed at 25 Cromwell Street. She was not living with her parents. She was under the care of the local authority. Before the attack, she regarded Rose West as a big sister, but afterwards she said she felt she had nowhere to turn. Miss A remarked that she could not tell the police. She could not tell her parents. She could not tell anyone. Miss A said about a month and a half after the attack, she returned to Cromwell Street, intent on burning the building to the ground. But she was not able to go through with it. The incident left her with a history of psychological problems, and she would later receive electroshock therapy. When cross-examined, Miss A was told that she made the whole thing up. Part of her mental health condition had meant she had struggled with separating fantasy from reality. I know what happened, she replied. It is not a fantasy. The survivor had managed to escape, although she was scarred for life. Some other teenagers and young women did not make it out alive. After they were killed, their bodies were dismembered. Heads and limbs removed so they could be more easily concealed in tight spaces. The only body buried in either the garden, cellar or bathroom of 25 Cromwell Street that was not surrounded by any evidence that suggested sexual abuse belonged to Shirley Ann Robinson. The court was told that Shirley was pregnant with Fred West's child. It was suggested this meant that Rose West had more of a motive to murder than her husband. And as Shirley had not been abused, it was theorised that Rose West committed the killing out of frustration, not sadistic pleasure. Brian Levison QC said, At the core of this case is the relationship between Frederick and Rosemary West, what they each knew about each other, what they did together, what they did to others and how far each was prepared to go. Much of what follows can be explained in the context that both were obsessed with sex. The West shared a knowledge about each other which bound them together. Frederick West had found the perfect companion. The prosecutor made it clear that Rose West did not act alone, but in concert with her husband. Be that as it may, it was concluded that she was not, however, responsible for the murders of Rena Costello, Fred's first wife, 
or Anne McFall, who was a nanny to Rena's children, Anne-Marie and Charmaine. The prosecution could not pinpoint precisely when Charmaine West was killed, although they believed it to be around the end of June or the start of July 1971. Fred West had been in prison for the first half of that year, and he was released on June 24th. A school photograph taken at the beginning of June proved that Charmaine West was still alive then, although in the final week of July her school was informed that she had left. There is no further evidence that proves she was alive past this point. Rose West claimed that she was told by her husband that Charmaine was collected by her mother and she had no reason to doubt that account. It seemed no one apart from Fred and Rose West knew exactly what happened. During the period of Fred's incarceration in 1971, Rose was becoming increasingly agitated by Charmaine's presence on Midland Road, the address Fred and Rose shared before they moved to Cromwell Street. Rose's frustration with Fred's stepdaughter manifested into physical abuse. Rose voiced her displeasure about Charmaine to a neighbour, Shirley Giles. Shirley's daughter Tracy was friends with Charmaine. On one occasion, Shirley Giles asked her daughter to pop round next door to ask for a cup of milk. When Tracy entered the property, she saw Charmaine restrained, balancing on top of a chair with her hands tied behind her back. Rose was about to strike her with a large wooden spoon. Tracy was told Charmaine had been naughty and needed to be punished. Shirley Joles found out what happened, although the incident was not reported to the police at the time. Rose West's neighbour eventually moved away, but her daughter had continually been asking to see Charmaine. When Shirley Giles returned to check in with the West family, her daughter Tracy asked where Charmaine was. Rose West replied, Gone to live with her mother, and bloody good riddance. In total, 612 bones were recovered from Cromwell Street. This did not factor in the other burial sites. It was not believed that Rose West was directly involved in cutting up the bodies, but it was considered that she played some part in disposing of Shirley Ann Robinson's remains. Rose was apparently jealous of Shirley as she was pregnant with Fred's baby. The horrors found at 25 Cromwell Street were, quote, more terrible than words can express. When the remains of each victim were examined, it was clear that Fred West adopted the same approach with each, cutting them into six pieces before they were mutilated further and then concealed. Fingers were removed to avoid identification 
and one or both kneecaps were missing from most of the victims. It was considered by the prosecutor that they were kept, and the bodies were maimed for no other reason than to mutilate them. Some of the victims were buried with the equipment that was used to torture them. In most cases, it was not possible to say how they died, only that they had been killed with unlawful force. Brian Leveson QC went on to say, Consider how much time it must have taken after death to deal with the remains, dismember the bodies, dispose of the excess soil that the digging had thrown up, dispose of the clothing, the belongings, tidy up and clear up the cellar. Even if we assume Rosemary West did not deal with the disposal, we must assume she knew what was going on. Daisy Letts was the first witness the prosecution called. Mother to the defendant, the witness told the court that she hated Fred West from the moment she laid eyes on him. Rose's father Bill was not around to testify. He had since passed away. Daisy and her husband had temporarily put Rose into care. They heard rumours that the then 15-year-old was being groomed for sex work and a doctor confirmed she was pregnant. They feared for her safety and were worried about the man she was spending so much time with. He was 12 years her senior. But the minute she turned 16, Rose could do as she pleased. She moved in with Fred West. Her parents were not initially told where she was or what happened to the baby. When they finally met Rose sometime later, Daisy and Bill pleaded with their daughter to leave. Rose considered it after she had an argument with her new partner, but when Fred turned up, she changed her mind. Rose told them they did not understand. There was, quote, nothing he would not do. From the stand, Daisy Letts testified. I am almost sure she said, even murder, or something of that expression. I thought it was the words of a highly strong girl, and we didn't take it seriously. Daisy Letts fell out of touch with her daughter, although she did visit Cromwell Street in the late 80s. She asked where her granddaughter Heather was, and she was told that the teenager had left home. When cross-examined by Rose West's defence counsel Richard Ferguson QC, Daisy Letts did not deny that she had preconceived notions about Fred West. She was upset and worried about the fact that her daughter was forming a relationship with a man 12 years older who was looking after two children. 
Rose's father had even tried to physically restrain his daughter from seeing Fred West by pushing her into her bedroom and locking the door. Rose's sister Glenys was also someone who did not take to her sibling's husband. Glenys would later say she was disgusted when Fred asked if she had ever considered an open relationship. She was appalled and described the question as smutty. Rose's sister had considered employing a private detective when Charmaine disappeared, although it never went any further than a consideration. Never in her wildest nightmares did Glenys think Charmaine had been murdered. A significant challenge against prosecuting Rose West was the lack of forensic evidence that tied her to the case. Everything was circumstantial. There were no witnesses to the murders. Some of the most emotional testimony came from the survivors of the sexual attacks by Fred and Rose West. What they had been subjected to was nothing short of harrowing. Caroline Owens, or Caroline Roberts, as she would go on to become, had lived with the Wests during the autumn of 1972. She enjoyed social gatherings at the home on Cromwell Street, but when Rose started to make repeated sexual advances towards her, Caroline did not feel comfortable with the situation, so she moved out. It was later that year when outside a pub, she crossed paths with Fred and Rose West. Caroline needed a lift and took the couple up on their offer. She was driven to an isolated area where she was bound, gagged and sexually assaulted by Rose. Caroline was taken back to Cromwell Street, where she was raped by Fred. She heard them talking about her genitals. Caroline was petrified that they would cut the lower area of her body in some form of warped surgery. When she tried to shout for help, Rose held the pillow over her mouth. Fred threatened Caroline that he would get his friends to rape her too. She was told that she would be murdered and her body hidden. Caroline Owens testified. He told me that he would keep me in the cellar and let his black friends use me and when they had finished with me, he would bury me under the paving stones of Gloucester. He said there were already hundreds of girls there and that the police would not find me. Somehow Caroline managed to escape. She felt terrified of telling anyone what happened. When she returned to her mother's, the attack was reported to the police. Caroline explained that she could not face going to trial in the early 70s, 
So instead, Fred and Rose West pleaded guilty to charges of indecent assault and actual bodily harm. Following the attack, Caroline became depressed and was prescribed Librium and some mild tranquilizers. She said the experience led to her making an attempt on her own life through an overdose, although she was now receiving counselling. I have been very sensitive to people being close to me and cuddling me since being abducted by Fred and Rose, she testified. In particular, I am wary of other adult females, even friends. I have a terrible feeling of worthlessness. When I became aware of the women that had been murdered and the alleged involvement of Fred and Rose West in 1994, I felt anger, frustration, guilt. I felt that if I had gone to court on my rape case, I could have stopped it. Richard Ferguson QC defending Rose West had insisted that the historic sex crimes were not directly linked to any of the murder charges. However, despite Ferguson's protests, the judge had ruled that the evidence was allowed to be submitted. The court was shown images of the bruises, rope burns and swelling from the tape wrapped around Caroline's mouth. Although there were no police statements available from that time, as records had been destroyed. It was suggested by Rose West's counsel that Caroline had embellished elements of her account for commercial gain. This was something Caroline Owens denied. The witness had admitted she sold her story to the Sun newspaper for £20,000, but Caroline said this had no bearing on the case whatsoever. The article titled, I Was Fred West's Sex Slave, was highlighted by Richard Ferguson, QC. Caroline Owens became distraught just before she left the stand and said, I wanted to get justice for the girls who didn't make it, because I feel like it was my fault. During the third week of the trial, the jury would hear from both one of the West's former neighbours and one of Fred's children. A resident of Cromwell Street, Catherine Halliday, who had a sexual relationship with Rose West and Rose's husband, Fred, described how progressively the sex acts between the three of them became more frequent and increasingly violent. Finally, it reached a point where Catherine Halliday felt unable to continue fearing what would happen. Bondage and sadism videos would play in the background, and numerous black leather masks and sex aids were on display in one room of the house. The witness explained that during that period in her life, she felt depressed and was very vulnerable. She believed she was exploited by Rose and her husband. 
Under cross-examination, Richard Ferguson QC inferred that the witness was not exploited due to the money she had made for her story. Catherine Halliday was forced to admit that she sold her story to the Sunday Mirror for £8,000. Testimony also came from Fred West's eldest surviving daughter. What she said must have been difficult to hear even for the most hardened prosecutor. Anne-Marie Davis, a name she had taken after getting married, spoke of a childhood of abuse. Her stepmother Rose watched as she was raped by her father in the cellar of their home. At such a young age, she did not know what was going on. When the eight-year-old asked what was happening, she was told she should be grateful and feel very lucky that she had such caring parents. They were going to help make sure that when she got married, Anne-Marie would be able to satisfy her husband. When asked about the series of horrific attacks, every response was voiced in a hushed tone, preceded by a sharp intake of breath. Even through tears, Anne-Marie managed to recount in graphic detail what her father and stepmother did to her. Anne-Marie described scratching at Rose West to make her stop. She even drew blood. Her stepmother did nothing to help. She told Anne-Marie to stop struggling and to stop being silly. The witness frequently apologised to the court and she sometimes struggled to form a response to the questions put to her. Anne-Marie said she wanted to bite off her father's tongue for what he had done to her. But when she was younger, in spite of the abuse, she idolised him. I was a daddy's girl, she remarked. When she was 15, she became pregnant. On January 12, 1980, she was treated at Gloucester Royal Infirmary. The pregnancy was terminated. During her second day offering evidence, Anne-Marie was late into court. It would later be revealed that the previous night she had tried to take her own life with an overdose of prescription drugs. She faced her cross-examination regardless. Her recollection of the attacks was brought into question and whether or not Rose West was really involved. Anne-Marie replied firmly that her stepmother played a part in the attacks. Richard Ferguson QC spoke about the type of person Anne-Marie was and the behaviour she exhibited in her teenage years. She did not deny she bullied other children at school. The court was then informed, like some of the other witnesses, Anne-Marie had received £3,000 from the Daily Star newspaper about her story. She had been discussing the possibility of writing a book 
although she said that this had no influence on her testimony or the accuracy of the events. As Anne-Marie spoke, her stepmother watched from the stand. Rose barely registered anything that was going on and looked at the witness on the odd occasion when the name of Rosemary West was used. Their eyes did meet once, before Anne-Marie quickly looked away. Rose West had yet to give testimony at the trial. Although jurors had heard her speak no more than a few words in the courtroom, an interview with the defendant recorded on February 25, 1994, was played to the court. Detectives could be heard telling Rose West that her husband has admitted to murdering their daughter. Rose shouts at them before she is told that it appears she is also implicated in the murder. She screams and through tears questions why, demanding that they stop the interview. Rose West is adamant that her husband had told her that he had seen Heather in Birmingham within the last 12 months. She shouts that any claim that she was involved in Heather's death is a lie and she appears to be convinced of Fred's involvement. She goes on to say that if she sees her husband again, he is a dead man. Before she was informed of her husband's confession, Rose West told detectives that she had problems with Heather. Rose said Heather was gay and she did not want the children to be around to see it. Asked by detectives about Heather's whereabouts, her mother dryly remarked, If you had any brains at all, you could find her. It can't be that difficult. Rose continually complained about her daughter's behaviour at school, saying that she was lazy. According to her mother, Heather did not do enough housework. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it bloody drink, can you? Rose said. She was a stubborn girl. You asked the rest of the family. She didn't want to do her own washing. She didn't want to move up off the seat. She was so negative. Rose said she made no effort to look for her daughter when she left home as Heather was 16. And in fact, it was Rose who was upset, feeling betrayed that her daughter had disappeared. Rose West was then asked about the comments made by her five children, who had since been taken into care. Detectives mentioned that some of the children said that Heather was buried under the patio. Rose could not explain why they would voice something she described as appalling. It was not until she later addressed the court from the stand that she claimed that during an argument, her stepdaughter Anne-Marie must have mentioned it to the other children. 
In the recording, Rose insisted to detectives that she was told by her husband that Heather had been seen around Bristol and later Birmingham. This was not long before Rose was then told of the news of Fred's confession and the bones being found at her home. Laying his cards on the table about Heather, Detective Sergeant Terence Onion said to Rose West, You are the wife of the person who has confessed to killing her. You live in the house on whose land the body is allegedly lying at this very moment. And so you know, Fred has described to us the steps taken and what has happened to Heather. And that didn't take minutes. It took somewhat longer. And you would have been in the house in between times or at times things were happening. You're either blind, extremely naive, or totally trusting of your husband or you are a liar. He has told everybody that has been near him today, his solicitor, the cell guard when he was initially brought in, Hazel Savage at the house, everybody who were there on tape. He's gone into depth, so he's told everybody. So don't worry about telling the truth now because it's out. And I still think you are hiding quite a lot. Professor Bernard Knight, the home office pathologist who examined each of the remains, offered evidence before the court. The expert witness testified that dismembering the bodies would not have been quick unless the person responsible had some anatomical knowledge, like a doctor or a butcher. Most of the remains unearthed in Cromwell Street had been dismembered, cuts made at the hip joint with a large bladed article likely a cleaver, along with some more minor cuts found on the bones. The heads had also been cut off and fingers removed. Professor Knight felt this was to avoid identification. To address the defence's concerns that the bones had somehow been damaged during recovery, Professor Knight was adamant there was no possible way this could have been done accidentally, as the dig team were incredibly mindful when excavating the remains. The bodies could not be buried with their legs outstretched. This was why they were cut up. The expert witness described them as being in anatomical disarray. Concluding his evidence, Professor Knight could not confirm if the bodies of the victims had been cut up when they were alive or dead. When he said this, Rose West looked at the floor and did not raise her head for some time. Five weeks into the proceedings and several notes that Fred had written to his wife from prison were read to the court. In one letter he wished Rose a happy birthday and described how beautiful she was. We will always be in love, Fred wrote. 
The most wonderful thing in my life is when I met you. Our love was special to us. So, love, keep your promises to me. You know what they are. When we are put together, it's up to you where. Lay Heather by us. We loved Heather. At the bottom of the correspondence that had not left West's cell, he drew a tombstone on which was written, Where no shadow falls in perfect peace. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The legal proceedings themselves were not without incident. 
The trial had to be briefly halted as a witness, Janet Leach, who had been acting as an appropriate adult for Fred West, had fainted when she was giving evidence on behalf of the prosecution. The charity worker was accompanying West during his interviews with police, around 80 in total. Yet she would hear a very different version of the events when the pair were alone. In England and Wales, the term appropriate adult is applied to an impartial individual who acts as a witness and provides support for a suspect when they are being questioned by the police. This ensures a suspect, who is believed to be vulnerable, receives fair treatment. An appropriate adult most commonly assists children or someone with a low IQ. They would usually receive no payment, and the role is voluntary. Social workers can be employed, but more often than not they do not have the spare time needed to fulfil the role, especially for substantial cases. When he was in custody, Fred West had allegedly told Janet Leach that he did not commit the crimes alone. Fred said he only claimed Rose was innocent because he wanted to protect his wife from prosecution. Janet Leach also professed that Fred admitted Rose and his brother John West were involved and were responsible for the killings, along with other unnamed individuals. The first time Fred had supposedly made the admission was a few days after his arrest. In his account to Janet Leach, Fred said Rose killed his stepdaughter Charmaine and his lover Shirley Ann Robinson, who was pregnant with his baby. He did help hide the bodies. It was claimed that the husband and wife had previously made a pact that Fred would take the blame. The revelations had a dramatic effect on Janet Leach's health. She had suffered from a stroke, and now partway through giving evidence was catatonic. She was not the only witness who said Rose was involved. The claims were substantiated by a medical officer who had treated Fred West at Winston Green Prison. Fred had told the official that he felt his wife was just as responsible when she restrained their children during the abuse. Janet Leach was transported back into the courtroom in a wheelchair. A doctor sat beside her the whole time she was giving evidence. A cross-examination would not be easy. Janet Leach had at first told the court when questioned that she had not engaged in any conversations with reporters or taken money for her story. As an appropriate adult, Leach would be required to sign a confidentiality agreement. When she returned to court, she was cross-examined by Defence Counsel Richard Ferguson, QC. It turns out Janet Leach had lied. The witness became extremely unsettled trying to catch her breath. 
She said that conversations with film executives and reporters had taken place. And along with her boyfriend, Brian Jones, they had accepted over £10,000 as an advance in a publishing deal. They also received money towards a holiday, and Leach had verbally accepted an offer for the newspaper rights for her story to the tune of £100,000. It was argued this brought into disrepute some of the claims she made, including an admission supposedly made by Fred West, in which he told Janet Leach that there were a further 20 victims, none of which the police had identified. She had also received correspondence from Fred West, even after she was no longer assisting him. Rose West's defence counsel put it to the witness that she was only continuing to correspond with a serial killer because she wanted to profit from what Fred West was writing. Janet Leach denied the allegation and said she only did this because she wanted to find out the truth. One victim Fred had specifically named to Janet Leach was Mary Bastholm who disappeared in 1968 when she was 15 years old. West told his appropriate adult that Mary's remains were buried on a farm. If this is true, Fred never got the chance to confess anything further before his death on New Year's Day 1995. Rose West's defence counsel told the jury that his client was a victim. She was completely unaware of what her husband had done. Yes, she may have had an open marriage and slept with the lodgers at Cromwell Street, but that did not make her a murderer. A listening device had been planted in the house where Rose West was staying before she was ultimately charged with multiple counts of murder, although no evidence was ever obtained in which she incriminated herself. Fred West had done all the DIY projects in the house, not his wife. A building site was not the place for pregnant women or children, he had apparently told her. The defence counsel, Richard Ferguson QC, proclaimed to jurors that the prosecution's arguments were superficially attractive, but they had not provided their case in court. On the subject of his client, Ferguson said, She fell like all others fell under his spell and became pregnant by him. Fred West abused her and he abused everyone else during the course of his evil life. Rose West would get to argue her case when she took the stand in her own defence. Trying to catch her breath as she fought back the tears... Rose described how she was abused by her husband. She also testified that when she was 15, 
she was raped twice. After leaving a Christmas party in Bishop's Cleeve, she had missed the last bus home and accepted a lift from an unnamed man. He had also been at the party. She said that she was raped and never told her parents. A second attack occurred after she was again waiting for a bus. Rose began talking to a man also at the bus stop, who said he was a soldier. As she felt increasingly uncomfortable, she slowly started to walk off. Then she ran. The man gave chase through a park in Cheltenham and then tackled her before she was raped. It was after these events that Rose said she met her future husband. She claimed she was vulnerable, but Fred won her over. The subject of Rose West's sexuality came up during questioning, and she bluntly told the court that being intimate with a woman was more satisfying in a sexual sense. She said that she was encouraged by her husband. Quote, My sexual relationships with other women were very special to me. They were entirely different than when I went with a man. They were warmer, closer, and I would say they were more fun. In her testimony in court, Rose West never made any mention of the fact that she had previously voiced her disapproval of her daughter apparently having an intimate relationship with someone of the same sex. Rose said that predominantly they had young female lodgers at Cromwell Street instead of male lodgers, as the young men they took in did drugs and never cleaned up. She thought they were dropouts who always wore psychedelic colours. Rose said that the home had been raided on occasion when the police were looking for drugs. The idea of taking in lodgers was concocted by Fred. He said it would help pay the bills. It was also her husband's suggestion that they have an open marriage. According to the defendant... Fred had pressured Rose to go to the pubs around Gloucester to pick up men. He said that if she refused, Fred threatened that he would make life hard for her. Rose claimed she was blackmailed with violence. However, from the stand, she said she was never paid any money for sex, despite what was written in the tabloids and the comments made by members of her own family. Rose West was asked about the attack on Caroline Owens in 1972. She said she could barely remember what happened. Rose claimed that she was scared of Fred and what he would do if she did not carry out the attack with him. After their conviction for indecent assault and actual bodily harm, Rose said she planned to move out with the children, although Fred convinced her to stay. Fred pleaded that nothing like that would happen again. Rose remarked, He could charm the birds out of the trees literally. He had the gift of the gap. 
It was a mistake in my life. Obviously now I tremendously regret it. I'm going to pay dearly for this one mistake I made in my life. But the fact is, I am on trial for murder, not indecent assault. Rose West was also questioned about neighbour Catherine Halliday, the witness who had described being subjected to violent sexual encounters. Rose dismissed this, saying they had been intimate, but she was adamant there was no violence. Rose West was finally asked by her defence counsel about the victims, some of whom had stayed in her home. She said she barely remembered them. She professed it was all her husband's fault. After all, statements to the police from other victims had described how they were attacked or almost abducted by a man who was driving around Gloucestershire. He either snatched them off the street or tried to attack them after they accepted a lift from him when they were hitchhiking. They never knew who it was until they saw Fred West's photograph in the newspapers. When speaking about how she now viewed Fred, Rose said, It might seem daft, but I saw him with horns complete with a satanic grin because he never looked sorry for what he did. He just used to grin, like it was all a joke. The queues for the public gallery had begun before dawn, growing interest in seeing Rosemary West conclude evidence in her own defence. Mrs West says she knew nothing of the killings of ten girls and young women, including her daughter and stepdaughter, The defence has described Mrs West as a victim of abuse by her husband, like others he abused during his life. When Rose West was cross-examined, prosecutor Brian Leveson QC told the court the reasons why the victims were tied up before they were murdered was so the husband and wife could, quote, play with them. The prosecutor said Rose West had made a career out of assaulting girls and she did not want to leave a trail of victims behind. The defendant continually denied the charges and claimed it was all Fred. I had nothing to do with it, she said. Brian Leveson QC put it to Rose that she killed Shirley Ann Robinson as she was afraid that Fred would run off with her. Fred had been having an affair with Shirley Ann, and she was pregnant. Leveson said, You had everything at risk. This time it wasn't sexual abuse, no binding, no mask. She was just killed. You were fully involved with that. Rose denied the allegation, saying that the person responsible for killing an unborn baby would have a quote, sick mind to do something like that.
in all Rose West gave birth to eight children. Although it was clear based on the colour of their skin, they were not all fathered by Fred. However, they were raised as if they were. Fred and Rose told them that one of their grandparents was black. Fred said they were his, quote, love children. When Fred West was sent to prison for theft in the early 70s, Charmaine began to be disruptive. Charmaine said she wanted to be with her biological mother. So, according to Rose, this is exactly what happened. She did not kill her. The defendant also said she loved her first daughter Heather very, very much. She would not hurt her. Fred had told Rose that Heather had left the family home and moved to Devon, working at a holiday camp. Rose testified that she did not question this and believed everything her husband told her. I'm the only one in the spotlight, Rose West told the court. Fred West is dead and got to take responsibility for what he'd done. Fred is responsible for these murders. I wasn't mixed up with murder, especially not my own daughter. Even though Rosemary West was the one being brought to Winchester Crown Court this morning, number three courtroom has been hearing the voice of her husband. This evidence has been introduced on behalf of the defence by Rosemary West's barrister, Richard Ferguson QC, who told the jury he would be playing them four tapes. West often appeared confused about the identity of his victims and the manner in which they'd met their deaths. At one point, he denied police suggestions that he'd blatantly gone out and killed people. Detective, but they went through hell. West, nobody went through hell. Enjoyment turned to disaster. Some of Rose West's children were not called as witnesses. Much like many individuals connected to the case, they had sold their story to the press. It was deemed their accounts were not reliable enough. The prosecution's main witness, Janet Leach, who had claimed that Fred West had said that he had lied to the police to help his wife, had also been given money by the media for her account of the events. Why she initially lied on the stand when she said she had not been paid for her story. Only Janet Leach knows. The defence barrister told the court that being paid for her account would have been reason enough to exaggerate her claims. The trial was approaching its seventh week when closing remarks were heard by 11 members of the jury. One member had to be discharged. It would only be learned that later after a night out drinking, the 23-year-old juror assaulted a security guard and damaged the security camera. 
he would go on to admit charges of actual bodily harm and criminal damage. Prosecutor Brian Levson QC told the court that through the trial, they had travelled to a place that plums the very depths of human depravity. He said that to deny Rose West's involvement flies in the face of all common sense. According to Rose West, she saw neither the murders nor the abuse. However, the bodies of these victims had been buried under the defendant's feet, not in a field. It was pointed out to the jury that just because Rose West may not have physically killed any of the victims, that did not mean she was not guilty of murder. Richard Ferguson QC, acting on behalf of Rose West, said that her husband was a man devoid of compassion, consumed with sexual lust, a sadistic killer, and someone who opted out of the human race, the very epitome of evil. The barrister told the court that the idea Fred West was acting to save his wife was nonsense. Fred West is not the stuff martyrs are made of, he said. Ferguson remarked that the evidence from Janet Leach, who claimed that Fred West was lying to protect Rose, was an unmitigated disaster. She had initially lied on the stand about the money she had been paid for information on Fred West. Ferguson compared the case against his client to that of O.J. Simpson, who had recently been acquitted of the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson, his ex-wife, and her friend Ron Goldman. The defence counsel concluded, I don't doubt you were conscious of the fact that in the United States, the O.J. Simpson case had just finished. This is not like the trial of O.J. There are no bloody footprints here. There are no gloves. No DNA evidence. You are not being asked by us to acquit in the teeth of the evidence, but you are being asked by us to acquit because there is no evidence. All that you have is conjecture, suspicion, perhaps prejudice, but what is required from you is a clear head, clear judgment, and at the end of the day, a clear conscience. In his summary of the case, the judge, Mr Justice Mantell, told jurors they had to put any preconceived ideas or sentiment out of their minds. They were the judges of the facts. He said, You have a heavy responsibility, and your task has not been made easier by reason of the sensational nature of this case and very considerable media interest which has surrounded it. You are bound to feel the pressure. I have warned you about the need to exclude from your consideration everything other than the evidence you have heard in court. The jury were instructed to find Rose West guilty of murder. They did not need to believe that she acted on her own. Rose could have acted with another party, 
and she intended to kill or cause serious bodily harm. If not murder, then an alternative of manslaughter would be applied if she acted in a way that caused grievous bodily harm. Mr Justice Mantell provided the jury with an example. Quote, Suppose you were sure that Rosemary West had enticed a particular young woman to Cromwell Street as part of a joint plan with Frederick West, that she be rendered helpless and sexually abused as a prelude to her being killed or caused some really serious bodily harm, even though it might be Frederick West who was ultimately responsible for dispatching the victim. Rosemary West would be equally guilty with Frederick West of the offence of murder, provided all the other ingredients or constituents of the offence were present. The judge said that jurors needed to consider if commercial considerations affected the evidence they heard when addressing the money paid to some witnesses for information. The jury were not to pass moral judgment on Rose West's lifestyle and the kind of videos the couple watched. But as the police found bondage equipment at the property, this evidence should not be dismissed entirely. The jury were told to take their time. Jurors deliberated for two days. They had been instructed to reach unanimous verdicts. On November 21, 1995, Rose West was brought back into the court, accompanied by four prison guards. The judge was told that so far the jury had only reached two verdicts for the murders of Heather and Charmaine West. The public gallery of Winchester Crown Court was packed. Family members and onlookers sat crammed together, almost unable to move. Rose West was pale-faced and swayed in the dock. Collectively, there seemed to be a sharp intake of breath as the verdicts were announced. This is the end of episode three. You can hear more on the case of Fred and Rose West in three days. And please make sure to follow They Walk Among Us on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our new Patreon producer, Vanessa Allen, and everyone who supports us through Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. 
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.